0: city it's your man big pat the voice of your charlotte hornets and you're listening to the all hornets podcast network presented by sports illustrated
1: i am back from vacation while i was away this little thing called the nba draft lottery happened And the Charlotte Hornets only went and moved up to number two overall. Chase Whitney, how did you enjoy lottery night?
0: Yeah, I mean, it was a pretty boring, uneventful night for Hornets fans. It was pretty run-of-the-mill, you know, except for when you move up two spots and have the chance to draft Scoot Henderson, who, if not for Victor Weminyama, would probably be the number one pick in this draft and would likely be the number one pick in many other drafts before and after this one. So, I mean, if you consider that no big deal, then, yeah, I mean, whatever. But, no, that it was... It was crazy. That was that was such a fun night. I, 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 a part of me wishes that you got to see it. But part of me thinks that you need to take a Florida fishing trip vacation and fly home on the night of the lottery every year now. So I, in a way, this might just be the solution. But part part of that'll is, fly
1: with Jess? Oh, we're in the lottery again this year. I need to go to Florida to go fishing. <laughs> yeah,
0: and I'd be like, oh, we're not in the lottery this year, but just in case we jump up from 26 <laughs> to number two, I'm going to go fishing in Florida. She doesn't
1: know that the bottom 14 team's are in the lottery. Hey, she could just think it's everyone, go. right?
0: There's a, I mean, technically, there's a lottery every year.
1: What an eye. I, I, I really want to save at the moment because like, you don't want to just be like, oh, so the Hornets are up to two. What should they do now? We chase, they have a whatever percentage chance I've posted it somewhere. It was like 75%
0: chance of picking second 75% chance of
1: is a 75% chance of being essentially third or worse. And they moved up in, in the year of all the shit that happened, everything that went wrong from Kenny Atkinson to miles bridges, to the injuries to, you know, everything that happened, they needed a slice of luck to get, to re-energize the city, to re-energize the fan base to like when you look around the league to actually really for like future power rankings point of view, give them some potential to feel like happy and to, to see a path out of mediocrity. And it isn't Victor Wembanyama, but we talked about it on our previous show. Like top three is great news. Top two is just freaking fantastic. I, I couldn't be more thrilled and we should bask in the glory of the number two pick. I'm not getting caught up in the, Brandon Miller versus Scoot Henderson debate, which has all of a sudden become polarizing. And I think fans are almost more stressed by having to pick it two. Let's just enjoy it. What's wrong with that?
0: There's nothing wrong with that. And we that's what we should be doing right now. The Hornets. And for anybody that had a split second of being like, oh, we just missed out again. It's always the Hornets. They can never be, you know, the team that wins it and really pulls through. There's was an article on The Athletic that, you know, runs through the actual lottery proceedings, like the drawing that happens in an enclosed room with media members and league uh, personnel present. Nobody's allowed to have a phone, nothing, po- impossible to tamper with and whatnot. But they wrote an article afterwards. The only teams, the only other team that had a chance at getting the number one pick with how they draw the numbers from the machine yeah. was the Wizards. <laughs> and the Wizards, so they're... I'm gonna, I'm gonna get a little too deep into this article here, but the, there are five numbers no, that come us. up for your com- for your combination. Yeah the first four, I don't remember what the numbers were, but the four, first four numbers were all the wizards numbers. The yeah. Spurs had one of those combinations. The wizards had six combinations for the final number in the set of five that had pulled up and they pulled the Spurs number. So the the wizards essentially, if they're a group of seven, the wizards had six of those, and that they pulled the Spurs number to get the number one pick. So I the thought there was
1: a group of eleven, and the Wizards owned six numbers, and the Spurs. Oh, owned you're five. right. You're right. Yes, you're that's what right. right. I thought. Yeah. R- so okay, you're right. You're they right. had like a a fifty five percent chance to get the number one overall pick. Is what I yeah. thought. Which, by the way, if I was a Wizards fan, I would wish that never. I didn't want to know that. Why, no, why would I want to know that? That would be that? the
0: worst piece of information oh, you could possibly find out. The poor
1: wizards. Like, I, I wouldn't want to know that we were a coin flip away from Victor Wimbanyama. Just let me suffer in silence. Don't yeah. tease me.
0: And jumping from eight to one too. Like not even yeah. four to one or four to two or three or whatever. That would have been an unprecedented amount of lottery luck in the best year to have it. Yeah. And they were one ping pong ball away. And the Spurs And then got we it.
1: would have had to see Victor Mbanyama every other yep. month yep. when we play Washington in the Southeast Division. We would exactly. have probably slipped down to number three, which judging by the tone of some of the Hornets commentary right now, people would probably like. I mean, <laughs> yeah. People seem to be stressing out less, about this. Less options, the better,
0: I suppose. <laughs> uh, uh,
1: yeah. People are just so ingrained with that the Charlotte Hornets are going to mess it up. And now there's like actually pressure on them and national media attention on them. Everyone's just bracing themselves for the worst. But I mean, like let's just say it right now, we're going to talk about Brandon Miller versus Scoot Henderson a lot and maybe some other players over the next four weeks. We're thrilled to get any of these guys. These guys are grade a prospects who would be top picks in any other draft would be right in the conversation. And they change the ceiling for this team next year going forward. Um, I, this is only good and there is no point in getting stressed out about this because either one is fine i prefer brandon miller i will be thrilled if we draft skew henderson it's it's okay folks you can you can enjoy both sides it doesn't have to become so freaking polarizing like everything does these days
0: you can just enjoy basketball we it it, it is possible and it'd be the world would be a better place if we all made that our objective going forward and hey Regardless of who they end up drafting, the basketball is going to be more enjoyable for the Hornets next year. So maybe oh, yeah. that won't won't be very difficult to accomplish. So this is, I, this is about quite literally the second best possible scenario that could have happened to the Hornets. Like they have such a better at long term, immediate and long term outlook just from moving up two spots. Even yeah. staying at four would have been fine, but this just literally changes everything like changes the entire path for the offseason changes the level at the, which their young core is going to be viewed around the league yep everything The gap
1: year the tanking gap year like you can argue that it was painful it was it was worth it in my opinion. absolutely
0: 110 like, percent. we
1: talked before about the hornets building too quickly didn't we you know they weren't patient enough they you know, became like a borderline playing team too early. And then they had a year where due to the injuries and other external circumstance, they've dropped down. And I I now feel like this is the year that should have happened before, like in that kind of like Lamelo rookie year almost. And it's happened now. And now it just feels like things are in a good place because there are good players that surround this new pick coming in. They're coming into an environment where it's not just going to be like, well, it's up to you, you know, Scoot Henderson or Brandon Miller. There's, there's loads around them to help support them and create a better environment. So it's it's very exciting. I, I do say my draft lottery experience was a strange one on the flight back. <laughs> um, I had this vision that if the Hornets moved up, that, that I would be buying drinks for the plane. I would be like, you know, getting pictures and hugging random people next to me. And there would just be like this, this joyous feature come over the whole aircraft. It was definitely not that. Um, <laughs> they, they, like 10 minutes before the draft lottery, they turned like the night lights on on the plane. So all of You're like, no, dark. no,
0: everything's just starting. It's just. Yes.
1: <laughs> I was like, no, you can't all go to sleep. The draft lottery is about to happen. And the internet was so spotty that I essentially found out that the Hornets made top five because of break. And then the internet chopped out again. And I only saw the overall results at the end where Wemby was one and Charlotte were two. And I did the whole double fist pump up in the air and kind of jumped out my my seat a little bit. And I kind of like looked around for someone to celebrate with. And my, my, we flew standby. So my friends, we were all like sitting various across the plane. We weren't sitting together who I traveled with. And like, everyone was just like asleep around me. And I was like, this is not, the jovial reaction i wanted pure euphoria and it was just a bit of a letdown where i was just like talking to myself going this is great news and on social media it wasn't it just wasn't right
0: it just wasn't right the the flight attendants are like do we need to make an emergency landing why is this guy freaking out in the back of the plane while everyone is asleep and it's like oh no the this basketball team got a draft pick it's like it. It sounds a lot different when you put it like that. Okay, and then I, they I would, would say, "I would've been right there with you."
1: And then they would say, "Oh, but it wasn't even the Victor Wembanyama guy, though, was it?" <laughs> yeah,
0: they'll be like, "Oh, they didn't even get Wemby." Yeah, they, they didn't you're even like, get wait, Wemby. What's wait, wait what'd about? you call him? <laughs>
1: um. So, but look, just one exciting time, and it mm. now makes this next month really interesting. We got a big debate on our hands. We've got Adam Spinella from the Box and One. Um, coming on the podcast, great guest, fantastic insight, one of the best draft evaluators, podcasters, uh, scouters. If you see his videos on YouTube, just does great work in the draft space. And we're going to be picking his brain about risers, fallers, what to do at number two, trade backs. There is a ton to come in this interview, which I think you guys are going to enjoy. So I hope you're excited about it as we are. Um, Chase, anything else you want to touch on here before we get to our interview with, with Coach Spins?
0: My one parting message, this was uh, something that you and I both championed f- throughout the uh, at later portions of the year. I'll have you notice that the two teams in the NBA who finished with the worst records
1: mm. and
0: uh, tanked, as some would call it, the hardest, uh, you could say, as opposed to the other teams in the NBA, they fell in the lottery. They fell as far as they could, the Detroit <laughs> Pistons, uh, from one to five. The Houston Rockets went from two to four, and two teams who actually tried, or three teams who actually tried, including Portland and Charlotte and San Antonio. Well, they the, all moved the Spurs,
1: up. The Spurs, you might be giving them a the, little sp- bit of a a little bit out there. a
0: little bit, but this the, a little bit for this year anyway. But this is the only year that they ever have really purposefully not fielded a playoff or play in caliber roster. Yeah, but do you see what happens when you respect the basketball gods this when you true. don't anger them? When you don't disgrace the beautiful game that we watch, eighty-two. Nights I don't know. Every single... I
1: watched the Charlotte Hornets this year, Chase, and we did disgrace the beautiful hey, game quite a lot. They, they may it have was brutal. They, but they did not disgrace it on purpose.
0: <laughs> this, <laughs> this is this is, this, true. this is the difference. Yes. And look what happened. You are rewarded. This is karma. This is what happens. The, the Hornets ultimately did the right thing. They didn't lose games on purpose. They didn't finish. Fourteen and seventy-two, or whatever, or fourteen to eight sixty-eight, or whatever it would have to be. They won games. They played hard, and yeah, everything came full circle. And now they got Scoot Henderson or Brandon Miller as a result. So
1: and and let's also be thankful that Mark Williams didn't have to be up on stage celebrating getting the number <laughs> yeah. one pick to replace him. <laughs> like <Yeah>. maybe <laughs> they're like Mark, how is... do you
0: feel? He's like, uh, I'm not sure if I'm gonna start. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't really know how yeah. I feel about this.
1: Now it's the best situation. Now he's like, I'm genuinely pumped because I've got Scoot Henderson or Brandon Miller, Raymond Thompson going to be playing next to me next year and that'll make my life easier. So um, yeah, just just a great day to be alive. Just just a great yep. day. We all go down in infamy. Like, you know, we talk about Lamella Ball, how important he is to the Hornets. That was down to lottery luck. The Hornets are now jumped up in two drafts in three years which really does mean we're due for some bad luck coming up. We just, but until it happens, blind faith, let's enjoy the ride. Um, let's enjoy draft night. It'd be really interesting to see if we get confirmation of the picks, like ahead of time. Like I saw Mitch Kupchak say in his post draft lottery interviews, like I really hope it's not a case where the agents don't let us meet with someone until a week before the draft. I hope we can get them in here early. And yeah, now we all know who's going one. It'll be interesting to see if Charlotte signal who they're going to take before the night of the draft, or will it be a question up to the very night on June 22nd? We will, we will find out. So thank you to the basketball gods for rewarding Charlotte's incompetence, but not our effort.
0: Thank you very much. We very much appreciate it.
1: All right, let's go on, speak to Adam Spinella of the Boxer Models. And welcome into Adam Spinella this week's guest. Ga- and welcome into Adam Spinella this week's guest on the All Hornets Draft Show. Do we call you Coach Spins? Do we call you Adam? What do you want to go by? Whatever you
2: want, man, it's fine by me. Adam is perfect for today.
1: Good. And uh, Adam is joining us, uh, part-time host on the Game Theory Podcast. I do. Are you calling yourself a host, a co-host, uh, what? What's your official title there?
2: Yeah, I don't know if I have an official title over there. It's whatever Sam needs me to be on any given week. But uh, really been honored to be joining Sam Vecini over there with the podcast uh, and, and on the athletic feed. It's been a, a great spot for me to be in. And, and Sam is the absolute best. So whatever he wants to call me, works with me.
1: Well, that sounds like you're adaptive and versatile, which, which <laughs> we like in draft prospects. So that's good to know. Um, so... Let's, Adam, let's tell a little bit of people. Maybe people haven't heard you on the Game Theory podcast before or or haven't seen your YouTube videos somehow, which would be a surprise to me if you've got this far in the draft. You listen to this podcast and you haven't seen the Box and Ones podcast. But why don't you tell the people a little bit just about yourself?
2: Yeah, so I got into NBA draft scouting about six years ago now when I made the transition from being a high school basketball coach to a college basketball coach. And the reason for doing so for me – was I wanted to get better at making quick, sharper evaluations on players and prospects because it would help me with my day job, right? I go to basketball tournaments and try to recruit players all throughout the year. I get only a certain window to see them play. So doing a lot of X's and O's scouting before was something I was really big on. I made the pivot a lot more towards prospect scouting around that time. And I fell in love with it. So during the pandemic, I started adding you know, YouTube videos and doing full video scouting reports in the uh, kind of style of those draft express guys from all those years ago, trying to fill the void after they got hired by ESPN and have just fallen in love with scouting so much to the point where this has really become a lot of what I do and almost all of what I do with my full time. So I run my own YouTube channel, which you can find with my name, Adam Spinella. Have a substack page, the boxinone.substack.com, for more written and in depth scouting report, philosophy things, just other musings that I find around the basketball world. Uh, and this game has really been a part of my life for a long period of time to the point where, you know, I'm a, a basketball coach and a high school head coach by day and a, a kind of scouting guy by night. So, Uh, basketball is kind of always on in in my household and and in my life and it's much to the chagrin of my wife but here we are
1: and I'm thinking that there's a whole generation who never saw the Draft Express strengths and weaknesses videos and I feel so sorry for that music I like it's just ingrained in my head for so long (laughs) after watching so many hours Um, so I'm glad someone uh, stepped up to, to fill in the void there
0: so thank you so much for coming on here Adam so I've Been one of my the Boxum one has been one of my like premier draft resources in my years covering the draft. And since I've been interested in it for a handful of years, I've been going back to the Substack, reading all the scouting reports and stuff. So it's definitely glad to have you on here. We very much appreciate you taking the time to come on here and spit some of that draft knowledge that you've got here. So why don't we just kind of dive right into it right now? Where so the Hornets picked up two prospects that many people had highly ranked in their draft boards. Mark Williams with the 15th pick Bryce McGowan's at 40. There were plenty of people that had him ranked much higher than that, but in this year's class, a much stronger class, admittedly, where would you have both of those two players ranked?
2: Yeah. So the, it's really challenging to know because I think the best way to do a cross year comparison is to try to go back and think about where they were as prospects. It's always going to be easier to like a guy like Mark Williams as opposed to a draft prospect this year because you've already seen he can produce in the NBA. But if I were to not have any professional tape on Mark Williams and he were declaring for the 2023 NBA draft, I think he's right in that same range, that kind of 12 to 18 Range and area. I had him twelfth on my board last year. He ended up going, you know, at the later part, just outside the lottery here for Charlotte. See a lot of great things that he does, and 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 love the long-term upside for a big man who is as mobile and fluid as he is, can protect the rim, maybe switch out on the perimeter for periods of times. Like all of the boxes that he's checked in theory pre-draft, he has lived up to so far in Charlotte. Uh, But I, I do believe that those are important boxes to check, so to speak. So. I would have him still as a lottery pick in this draft. And and I I was high on McGowan's too. I had a first round grade on on Bryce a year ago, had him 23rd on my personal board. I think that's probably a similar range in comparison to this class. You know, I think last year's was a little bit better at the top outside of the Victor Weminyama thing. Obviously he is a, a freak show of a prospect of the best that I've ever evaluated. But I do believe that there was a decent amount of depth in the top 10 last year. But then it became the wild, wild west when you get to the middle part of the first round and the later part there. I think that's going to hold true this year as well, where McGowan's being kind of in that late teens, early 20s range would be compared to a lot of similar players who were one and duns this year that maybe have one or two flaws about them, didn't get to show the full extent of their game, more score first than anything. I think this 2023 class echoes that from a year ago. In the fact that there are a lot of those guys that we have to try to figure out where to slot, and McGowan's belongs in that conversation with them as prospects.
1: It's actually really interesting. Like um Gigi Jackson played at South Carolina, where Bryce McGowan's is from, and actually you could arguably compare like their college situations. You know, two score first players, but are on teams which were probably not best surrounded. And and Mitch Kupchak talked a lot last year, and Steve Clifford talked about it in training camp that being like you look last year and it says like Bryce McGowan shot 29% from three. And you look at his efficiency and you think he's an inefficient player, but actually he was just in a role where he found it hard to be efficient because defenses were able to essentially focus in on him. And Gigi Jackson has probably dealt with some of the similar things. And actually at the combine, I heard Gigi Jackson talking about how he's actually good friends with Bryce McGowan's and in touch with them. So it's one maybe for Hornets fans just to, to keep an eye on there. Cause if they were scouting Bryce McGowan's, In high school, I can guarantee that they were at the same events with Gigi Jackson and they will have seen a lot of him as well. And he's he's a local South Carolina guy. So it's just one I think Hornets fans should keep an eye on uh, throughout the draft process. It would shock me if they didn't bring in Gigi at some point.
2: Yeah, and then the Hornets seem like one of the few teams in the NBA that are very tied to either bringing in for workouts or valuing guys who have ties to the local area. They yeah. have long drafted players from Duke or Carolina. We know with the Michael Jordan era and, and Rich Cho there for a while, they they really valued multi-year college guys who would We a didn't say the name of, of the I
1: mean, We didn't say it, that name
2: <laughs> That is that is my mistake for sure. But I I think that there's been a an evolution over the last several years of how the Hornets have drafted and valued guys. But the one constant seems to be, they do like ties to the
0: local area. Yeah. Gigi okay. Jackson originally committed to UNC though, did decommit. So we don't know. It might've left a sour taste in uh, Michael Jordan's mouth. So we'll yeah, see that's, if that, a, that's a polarizing that affects sure. anything. <laughs> yeah.
1: All right. So we're going to be touching on a few things today. We're going to be talking about our next topic, which should be, Brandon Miller versus Scoot Henderson, who had that on their bingo card today. Um, I think we might talk about that a few times over the next month, Chase. I'm just going to suggest that. Uh, we're going to be talking Maybe. a little bit about tradeback possibilities, wild card selections, get your input on the combine, which is just finished up, and also looking at some favorite prospects for the later in the draft for the Hornets. So let's come on, let's get into it. Brandon Miller versus Scoot Henderson. It's the question pretty much on the mind of the entire draft community because it's the first big unknown of the draft. Um, Where do you stand on it? Uh, Let's just, let's go from that.
2: Yeah. So look, the draft was always going to start at number two because Victor Weminyama is the golden goose in this year's draft And San Antonio. All, all power to them have the great opportunity to be able to draft him, but It was always going to be a question of who ends up at number two really determines how real of a conversation it is between Scoot Henderson and Brandon Miller. And one of the reasons for that is because teams tend to look to try to add younger players who fit next to their existing core. Uh, I think Scoot Henderson is a better prospect. I've been fairly clear on that throughout this entire draft cycle. I think he projects more as a number one option moving forward Uh, That's due to the separation burst and the rim pressure that he kind of brings to the table. And at the end of the day, if you have a top three or four pick, you're most likely looking for that alpha male, that guy who can come in and be the number one option on the offensive end for your franchise. Every team needs one in order to advance through the postseason and become a legitimate championship contender. If you have one of the most valued picks on the board, that should be what you are aiming for. So I tend to believe in scoots ability to get there a little bit more. It's not just the athleticism and the burst. He's a really good high volume pick and roll player. Um, The knock on Scoot Henderson has been his three point jump shot and its consistency throughout the last couple of years. I'm not as worried about the shot as maybe some other people. His mid range pull up is excellent. I think his form from three is consistent. And I did dive back in and do the numbers and, and really, Uh, watch a lot of film to see when teams went underneath ball screens that Scoot Henderson was involved in, because if you are a high volume pick and roll player, but you don't shoot from three, the easy way to counter that is to go under screens and dare you to shoot. And the numbers actually bear out that Scoot was very good in those situations that where he struggles from three is more so with quicker, maybe contested shots, not necessarily the ones where defense go underneath and dare him to shoot. So I am bullish and optimistic that he is going to be a three-level scorer in the NBA. So in terms of fixing the flaws that exist, because I'm high on that for Scoot Henderson, I tend to buy into him a lot more than I do a guy like Brandon Miller. Miller tends to be seen as a better fit, and I use that in quotation marks, next to LaMelo Ball. Uh, That's driven by a lack of positional overlap, right? Scoot Henderson being a high-volume pick-and-roll guy, There's some worry about the mesh between Scoot and LaMelo of who plays on ball, who plays off ball, particularly knowing that Scoot isn't a great shooter right now. You might worry about putting the ball in LaMelo's hands while having a non-shooting smaller guard next to him on the floor. Uh, The lack of positional overlap leads us to believe that Brandon is going to be a good fit in Charlotte, but look, the defensive end of the floor is where the fit really comes into me a little bit more. Uh, I don't consider Miller a great defensive prospect, but he's six foot nine with long arms and he's competent on that end of the floor. This is fit more so in terms of Scoot and LaMelo together, make the Hornets commit to a smaller style on the perimeter. And that's not a recipe for success, really, in the modern NBA. There are not a ton of teams still playing in the postseason or that really make their way deep into the playoffs who have two smaller guys on the perimeter, on the defensive end of the floor, or one guy who's kind of a weaker link, so to speak. And I think at at this point, it's fair to say that's what LaMelo ball's reputation around the league is, is a, a weaker link defensively that it's easier to blanket a guy like him. If you don't have smaller players on the perimeter that you can blanket one weak defender with length, athleticism, switchability, versatility elsewhere. So I get the fit conversation of why Brandon Miller nestles in a little bit better. Uh, But again, I keep leaning back onto my overall philosophy, which is take best player available. Take the guy who's most likely to become a star. And I think that's Scoot Henderson. So it is a debate. It's a really fascinating one for Charlotte and their organization to try to find their way through. But I am very high on Scoot Henderson. I love the intangibles that he brings to the table. I think he'd be only a positive presence for the team and in the locker room to the point where I'm just so sold on him that it's less about fit and more about just getting two really good players to play side-by-side for the next several years.
1: It's a very compelling case. Now, what you don't know is that I've been team Brandon Miller at two probably since about February. So this isn't just a... You know, react to the draft and go. Oh. And and Chase is firmly on the Scoot island, so we have opposing views on this. Which is which is because we agree on a lot. It's actually quite refreshing to have opposing views. <laughs> sure. um, it's it's a good thing. Um, you talk about the intel a little bit, and I'm aware as well that I think you talked the other day on your podcast, the Game Theory podcast, saying that Scoot he's a winner, how he carries himself and his work ethic. I like this is. But I've only really looked at the film. I've not taken into account in my rankings yet the intel, the mm-hmm. off the approach, the personality, all that stuff. Because it's very hard for like the the people sitting at home who aren't as connected like yourself are to, to get that and to try and guess through YouTube videos is just wrong. Yeah. But what is it that maybe you've heard, um, and you know, through your networks, through other people about Brandon Miller and about Scoot Henderson? Because we've seen some smoke out there from Draft Express through um, you know, other people saying that he's not into Brandon Miller isn't interviewing well and stuff of that nature. Yeah. It'd be just great to get some insight on like sure. the Intel of them off the court.
2: Yeah. So I, I fear that I'm going to disappoint because I'm not as well tapped into this conversation as maybe you'd hope that I'd be in terms of the Intel and the behind the scenes thing there. Uh, I do think that you're right. It's very responsible when you don't have that Intel to make sure that you're not pigeonholing yourself into one camp or the other. So I have heard only good things about Brandon Miller. Uh, This draft express tweet that we've seen the last couple of days making the rounds is new Intel to me. It's not Mm -hmm. something that I've encountered from other people. Uh, You know, there is, there was a situation at the university of Alabama this winter that has raised some red flags and perhaps appropriately. So about Brandon Miller, whether it's his character, the situations that he finds himself in the people that he surrounds himself with, I'm not really addressing any of that by talking about how much I value Scoot Henderson as an intangibles guy. And this comes down to just the positive intel that I've heard about Scoot, not anything negative about Brandon Miller, that every indication about who Scoot Henderson is, is one of the hardest workers, the most driven guys that you'll find, uh, somebody who just has that it factor in that field. And it's really hard to put your finger on an it factor and, define it explain what it is or how or why somebody has it you just kind of know it when you see it and to me that's the biggest thing that stood out about scoot henderson this year being a teenager leading a team in a professional league his feel for knowing what to do on the court when to attack when to create for others how to be that emotional physical spearheading leader for his team that is such an acquired skill that you cannot teach for him to have it at his young and advanced age just speaks to the intangibles that this guy has.
1: I hate to say it, but I I do agree with that. And that they are so close, even though I have Brandon Miller ahead of scoop, they are so close that if I was the Hornets and I had the Intel and, you know, again, not that Brandon Miller's is negative, but they're just that scoots is so positive. Like you say, he has yeah. that it factor. And you know, I was, I was rewatching the ignite Mets game earlier today and there was just little moments, and that was early in the season, where like Scoot is like pulling fifteen year old NBA vets over and being like, "No, you need to communicate with me on the screen." And I'm like, "Wow!" Like that little things like that, which you just don't see. I know it seems obvious, but you just don't see all the time. Um, it is something that if I was in the room and I had the intel, it it could sway my decision to go the yeah. other way because it yeah. and, is so important.
2: And that game in particular is one that I think won over a lot of scouts in terms of yeah. the intangibles because he started out really scoring very heavily and trying to go at Victor Weminyama, which is not something we've seen a lot of smaller guards do. He was really confident in trying to go at him in ball screens and isolation situations, kind of put the team on his back to steady the ship when everyone might be a little bit nervous. This is the biggest spotlight that many of the younger players on the Ignite have ever had on them. He handled that with grace and took the scoring load early. And then you look in the fourth quarter of that game, when it comes down to crunch time and he's trying to make winning plays for his team, much more of a facilitator, getting others involved out of the pick and roll, just making the right basketball decision to have the poise and the composure in that moment to know it's not about me versus Vic. I don't need to come out here and score 35 and lose. I need to come out here and make the right play for us to win. Like As a coach, that is the guy I would want in my locker
1: room. Mm.
0: Rod Boone talked to Scoot pretty soon after the lottery had ended and when it became apparent that you know, there was going to be a strong debate between him and Brandon Miller at number two, given the team that had landed that pick. And he basically told Rod, he was like, I don't need to play on ball. He's like, that's not something that really matters to me. He's like, when it's my time to have the ball, then it's my time and I'm going to kill it. And it's like, that's the exact type of attitude you want, especially from somebody who's literally going to be like, potentially the best player on your team in the future if not your your long-term future number two option having that attitude of being like i'm willing to defer to you know anybody on the team at any time when we need to because i want to win that's a very very positive sign for a guy that's 18 years old or 19 years old now he is a culture more mature
2: he is a culture changer and again this is not a negative about brandon miller i don't think that there's A lot that I've heard about him being a poor teammate, about him not being a mature, positive kid, but when you have a culture changer who could come into your franchise, that is the secret sauce here. Isaiah Thomas, the old Pistons point guard, uh, said to Bill Simmons one time in his book of basketball, the secret to basketball is that it's not about basketball. It's about the people, the chemistry, the cohesion that you have. And, you know, a lot of people laud the Oklahoma City Thunder for the rebuild that they have gone on the last couple of years, how quickly they put themselves in a position to be a play-in or potentially playoff team this year. I don't think it's as much about the on-court fit, the skill level and the talent of guys that they have, their massive positional size, all these things that we know about the Thunder. It's that they've got the right people in their locker room. And I tend to lean back on that time and time again of why did the San Antonio Spurs dynasty last as long as it did? Why did Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls have success? They always have the right people in their locker room. And so many times in the draft space, we want to use the data, the stats, the film available when sometimes the simplest answer is often the best one. Get the people who change your culture and move your organization in the right direction and you can find the skill stuff around them to make things work later.
1: It's a very good point. And it kind of reminds me when Tyrese Halliburton dropped to the draft, right? And the intel on him was incredible. Like the best person in the draft. You like you say, culture change, but he has a weird looking shot. You know, can he get to the rim? And you look at it now and you know that's that's coming through and he's leading his own team. Um Yeah, it's it's a great point. And it is a point that I am thinking very strongly on. That's all I will say on that. Um, I'm I'm curious, uh, Adam, do do you think Brandon Miller can play the two? Because I've seen some people looking at this, um, again, to try and just talk about how, like, you know, it creates like a, you know, everyone's 6'8 across the board for the Hornets, 6'8 are taller. Um, Like for me, I'm actually really high on his defense. I, I think he's... I love how he challenges every shot. He's never at the play. He rebounds the ball to an extremely good level. But even I struggle to see him as a like a two defender because he is not the quickest. He's not the lowest, like guarding smaller guards. But it'd be good to get your your view on that.
2: So I think the position you play is all about the position you guard that in the modern NBA, there are enough interchangeable skill sets offensively that you can construct a roster that just puts guys in positions to succeed. It's all about who you match up with on the other end of the floor. So I tend to agree with you that Brandon Miller is much more appropriately defending the three and the four than he is the two. But that said, it really does depend on the scheme and what you're asking him to do. I would envision that if you're playing Brandon Miller at the team, At the two on your team, you're switching ball screens more often, which means that his lack of quickness, particularly in ball screen situations, isn't as much of a negative quickness getting through screens can set guys at a disadvantage when you switch it. You don't have that worry. Uh, I also look at the, the Hornets roster of how much length they've drafted over the last couple of years, trying to find players at the four and the five who have that great positional size. You're not as worried about Brandon Miller defending on an island at the two if you know you always have rim protection behind him to try to contest some of those shots. So that's not to say that it cannot work. I think that there is a realm of possibility where it can work. I just don't think it's the ideal way to utilize Brandon Miller as a defender, and it requires so much more of your roster construction in order to make it a possibility.
1: And my, my last question, my sub-question on the the kind of scoot Brandon mill debate, uh, how many of the last drafts would Scoot Henderson have gone number one?
2: Ooh, yeah, I hear this question a lot. And I, I think it's it's a challenging thing to to try to dissect at times. Uh, you know, I look back to last year, him and Paolo Bancaro, the number one overall pick. Like, I think Scoot is on the same tier, if not maybe slightly higher, of a, a prospect. But it's positional size, right? The tiebreaker goes to the bigger guy who can guard more positions on defense. So whether it's Paolo Bancaro last year or Cade Cunningham two years ago, Anthony Edwards three years ago, all these number one overall picks, they're just a little bit bigger and longer and more versatile on defense. Uh, I do have Scoot ahead of Bancaro and ahead of Anthony Edwards. I was really high on Cade Cunningham back in 2021 and believe that he was one of the better prospects that I've seen. So, uh, you know, Zion, freak of a player, really different type of prospect. You know, 2018, like, I think he was better than DeAndre Ayton, for sure. I was not a fan of him being number one overall in that draft. But Luka Doncic, a better prospect than a guy like Scoot Henderson. So if we're looking at recent history, we don't have many examples of smaller guards really going this high in the draft who have been as impactful as he has. So it's really... It's really a fascinating conversation, but more so than any of those other players, you have to commit to a certain style of play when you have Scoot Henderson. Mm. I think he needs, well, he he does say, and you're right about this, Chase, he just wants to do what's best for the team. He'll play off ball if he needs to. I think the best utilization of him is with the ball in his hands. It's in the pick and roll. It's with longer wing shooters around him, making sure that they can switch out and protect him if he ever tries to get isolated or mismatched on the defensive end of the floor because at the end of the day he is six foot two six foot three that does put a bullseye on your chest in a postseason series so it's not as much about is scoot as good as these other guys i think he is but he requires more catering to in Mm. order to get that maximum out of him
1: chase i'm curious You've, you've got brandon miller ranked fifth on your board um Would you see Charlotte selecting Brandon Miller at two as a defensible, you know, is this something where you're going to be criticizing the Hornets for the selection heavily, or do you think it's, you could kind of like understand it while also disagreeing and respecting that point of view on things?
0: It's definitely like something that you can reason with while being like, I think there are other options that I would prefer. Uh, I mean, I've, I do have him fifth on my board, but if it was just a big bo- if I worked for the Hornets and was making a big board of prospects that the Hornets had to draft, I probably would have him at four and flip flop him and cam Whitmore fourth and fifth. Uh, I, I, a man I think is still probably to me, a, a preferable fit. And I think the, the defense thing was a, a big uh, point in that for me as well, which is like why I think it's kind of interesting that he's not really a part of this debate is because if you're worried about defense with scoop, and necessarily, like you, but you also want somebody that has high upside. Amen is kind of the solution to that problem because he would be the extremely high level or backcourt defender to pair with Lamelo. You can basically just never put Lamelo on the better backcourt def- player and have a man wreak havoc in that role for as long as they're in, in the backcourt together. And then he also, if he has a jump shot, that that pans out. He is it, going to be a very effective off ball player, I think, as well, just with how athletic he is and how easily he's going to be able to get open with a player like lamello being able to find him spraying like insane pa- passing reads at all angles across the court so I, I that is something that i've actually been thinking about a lot in the last couple of days is that maybe it's i mean i don't think it's actually going to end up this way because i think the hornets will probably end up being locked in on and brandon miller but maybe there's a, a non-zero chance of, of a Men thompson joining this this debate here and maybe getting like a workout and he already interviewed with the Hornets. So yeah. maybe, maybe they, they, they go down that Avenue a little bit and at least explore it. Cause I guess that's probably the alternative. If, if you're looking for a certain type of player to pair with LaMelo and Scoot doesn't fit that bill, maybe Amen would, you know, check more boxes.
2: It's interesting. And like, I'm sure we'll talk about different possibilities of either trade backs or, or things like that for the Hornets. But uh you know, I, I think with a men Thompson there's the second overall pick is a really tough spot to justify taking such a risk in that regard, because while we can see the theoretical fit for a men Thompson, if he fit, if he hits on his upside and talent, he is the least developed of a jump shooter of all of those guys, which can make him a tough fit next to LaMelo ball. He comes from a rather unproven course with the overtime elite program which makes it really difficult to justify him at times over a Scoot Henderson or a Brandon Miller. I'm not saying he doesn't belong in that same conversation. I have Amend men Thompson third overall on my personal board ahead of a guy like Brandon Miller right now. But I do think that there's so much pressure on a lot of decision makers and general managers to make sure that they are somewhat risk averse when they have a high profile pick that a men Thompson at two is a challenge but if you fall in love with the guy maybe the right course of action would be to trade back a couple of spots and see if you can Mm. get him at that point
1: so I've got a very interesting couple of quotes I want to read you both here from Mitch Kupchak and this was in his uh, post-draft interview Um, so the the two two quotes which are separate but he references his first quote the second one so the first one here he says if you just look to the mock drafts or just for the draft I think a lot of people say there's a clear cut top three and then there's the next level. I think even if we'd ended up at four or five or six, I really believe that we would have got a good player, a really good player. He then goes on to say when he was asked about the cutoff of elite players, he said, I've got a number in my head, which I won't share. I did talk a little bit about it before. Generally speaking, what mock draft say, take that with a grain of salt. But in my mind, yeah, I've got a feel for where I consider the cutoff to be which really kind of does almost sound like he's trying to lay the seeds really early to be like, it's not just about the top three people. We really like the top five or six, and we've got a cutoff number, which, like you say, they do love Amen Thompson or Cam Whitmore or someone else. um, I don't know. That was just a strange quote to me. It sounded like he was wanting to sandbag a little bit or, or kind of get something out there now that if there was a trade down the line, well, it's because we viewed there to be five elite players in the draft and we could get assets plus a player who we have higher on our board, which would surprise me. And I, I definitely, I have that tier, those three people a tier above, like Mitch Kupchak says, if you look online, that's my view. Um, but it is interesting there. I mean, what, what trade back possibilities do we think there could be? I mean, behind you've got Portland, after them you've got Houston, and then you've probably got Detroit after that do any of those teams kind of stand out as more natural trade partners for for Charlotte to either of you?
2: Yeah, I'll take that first here, Chase. Um, You know, I think the quote is a really fascinating one by Cupjack first and Mm. foremost. Uh, And the biggest reason for that, we oftentimes forget the pressures that presidents of basketball operations, general managers are under. They still have a boss that they answer to and it's the owner of the organization. And, even though the owner empowers his general manager and his scouting department to make decisions that are best for the team, the public narrative is often one that finds their way to ownership to those people who are overseeing the general managers and the presidents of basketball ops. So this is as much maybe a softening for ownership, for those who might put pressure on cup to just go with the preconceived narrative as it is to anything else. And to me, that's standard practice this early in the draft, keeping all of the options open so that when you get closer to draft day on June or or it is draft day itself, you can just make the decisions that are best for your organization and have more ability to sway your ownership to go along with that. I think for the Hornets, trading back out of two is a really tough spot to be in because this is a group that is in search of another tentpole star to either pair next to LaMelo Ball or, if you're not sold on LaMelo being that guy, to finally acquire one. And if you ever trade back, it's just harder to get, in theory, that type of tentpole star. That said, I think Houston would be the most realistic trading partner to make some of this happen. And it comes down to a couple different reasons. One, I think the Rockets are a little bit more desperate for that one younger culture changer, that they have a lot of really good younger pieces on their roster, but they are desperate for a guy who's going to come in and lead them while fitting their timeline. That is where Scoot Henderson would fit in a little bit more. And if Charlotte saw the opportunity to fall in love with an Amen Thompson, to believe that Brandon Miller might be there at number four or have somebody else entirely that they valued, Houston becomes a natural trade partner, move back two spots, still get a really high ceiling, long-term talent, and probably get another good asset with it, whether it's one of the future draft selections that the Rockets have or the multitude of young players already on their roster. So Houston is the first one that screams out to me in this regard. Uh, I don't know if there are any other in the top five or six. Like I don't think Detroit necessarily has a ton of the cachet that they would want to give up particularly knowing that Scoot Henderson would not be a great fit there in Detroit since they already have Jaden Ivey and Cade Cunningham. Like, I think that they'd probably be better off waiting till three with Portland and seeing if they could work something with them. But uh,
0: it, it's it's a fluid situation to monitor for sure. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm in complete agreement on the Houston front. Honestly, I think that might be one of the only teams that's really in the running for a trade like that. Because even if you go further down the board, say like you think Indiana or Orlando falls in love with one of these guys, I don't know if those teams are necessarily close enough to contention to be able to convince themselves that they need to part with very serious assets, to, especially because they're further down the board than you know someone like Houston or Portland would be, to move up that far and get Scoot. And potentially still have like an incomplete team that is, you know, you have no real first round pick capital to trade. You've already given up, presumably, another young player. I think Houston is really the team that's in a prime position, really. If if that opportunity presents itself for them, I would be very surprised if they're not all over that, just trying to trade, you know, next year's first top five protected plus four and then Shangoon or whatever young player they can to just move up a couple spots and get scooped because scoot and Jalen Green is hands down the best young backcourt duo in the league, much like LaMelo and Scoot would be if the Hornets picked them. So I can understand why they'd want to be in this position. Uh, So it definitely makes sense that that would be I wouldn't be surprised at all if we hear some sort of like smokescreen rumor about that, If even if it doesn't come yeah. true,
2: Well, and, and the challenge of trying to trade down is you need to get equal value out of the deal that you're looking for. And the farther down in this year's draft you would acquire a pick, the harder it is to recoup that value because you're relying on future assets or future draft picks that you don't really know the value of yet. And particularly in a class where you're sitting with the number two overall selection in what's thought of to be a class that has a lot of high-end talent when you look forward to 2024 and that draft class doesn't seem to have that established already. I think mortgaging the present in order for the future when you have such a valuable asset like Charlotte has is not a really sensible move. So the only way I could see them moving back is if they really fall in love with a guy who they believe is going to be there at four and get that godfather offer that they cannot refuse from a team like Houston.
1: I I think you've got the 2019 draft, uh, uh, maybe not 2019, but the the Markel Fultz, Jason Tatum draft, where obviously Boston were in number one. Um, They moved back to number three to pick up Jason Tatum because they had Tatum one on their board and they knew he would be there at three. They knew it. They weren't moving back and taking the guy who was second on their board. Like they knew they were getting the guy. And if Charlotte found themselves in that situation, then I could understand them making that similar move. Um, it's one of those where it's hard to get on board with. When you, I mean, my, me personally, you'd probably be more on board with it, Chase, with like Amen Thompson with with your kind of board. But like for me, I'd find it hard to get on board with that because I have a big change in valuation from, you know, the guys who will go two and three compared to four. But that's where, you know, the, the teams need to, Ignore the outside noise. They have to, you have to trust yourself because if you just start letting outside draft people influence you, then what is the point of having a scouting department? Like you have to own your own opinions, like, and and you can't be letting outside influence. So I, you know, I wouldn't be making that move to then pick up like the guy who's like second or third in your board just to get the first round pick. I'd be moving it to get the same guy who you actually want and to get bonus assets on top of that. And I think the, the rough guide for that would probably be a first, a player, maybe, something something that kind of realm, which I think Houston would be probably quite keen for, if we spoke to Houston fans, if they could get their hands on Scoop. Um, it's not something I will be uh, pursuing as a, an active way to to improve the team going forward.
2: Yeah, Scoot and Houston would be an unbelievable fit for them, but I, I think the Tatum and Fultz swap from 2017 is the appropriate one to look at there, James. That that's certainly the blueprint for what does it take to move up two spots in a draft when we're talking yeah. about this high-end level of talent. And for obvious reason, to be honest with you, I think there's a lot of comparison between Scoot Henderson and Markel Fultz for the type of impact they were expected to have in the yeah. NBA moving forward. Even though it's the number two overall pick, you treat it like it's a number one because of how valuable in many circles Scoot Henderson is. That might just be a little bit of smoke as well. Like the the draft community and, and those in front offices may be much more split on whether it's Scoot or Brandon Miller. And maybe this is a team out of nowhere, like Detroit moving up for, from five to two to try to get a Brandon Miller so there are still different options that are available on the table there, but at the end of the day, I would be surprised if the Hornets
1: move back. I mean, it would save Michael Jordan some money, wouldn't it, on the uh, the old draft process? So <laughs> maybe we shouldn't rule it out. Okay, Chase, you want to take us on to our next question here?
0: All right. So combine concluded yesterday. Recording this Friday, May 16th through 18th. A couple scrimmages. Couple of days of scrimmages, whole bunch of interviews. Everybody measure—not everybody, but everybody that opted to measure in has had their official measurements posted on the NBA Draft Combine Anthro page for anybody that wants to go look that up. But uh, over, obviously, as there is every year, there are plenty of prospects that move up the boards a little bit. There are some others that move down, whether that's their measurements, interviews, the scrimmage performances. But as there is every year, Adam, who in your mind? rose up the boards a little bit at the Combine this year and who fell down the boards a little bit?
2: So, Chase, I'm going to give you a diplomatic answer and set the table first, which is this is one of the stranger years in terms of Combine play. Um, And the biggest reason for that, they invited 70-something participants and only 44, 43 of them really played. And that number shrunk by the end of the week because guys who performed well on day one pulled themselves out day two. So if you do the math on those numbers, that's about thirty guys who were seen as prospects, the top prospects invited to the combine who did not play. Uh, that made it really hard for some guys who were seen as late first round prospects to then move up and cement themselves as maybe lottery guys in the way we saw a year ago with Jalen Williams out of Santa Clara, who ended up being a lottery pick for the Oklahoma City Thunder and had a fantastic rookie season. So, very different expectations this year because so many guys opted just not to play who were already on first round radars. That said, there were several guys who helped themselves to drastically improve their draft positioning or at least blast through that glass ceiling and become legitimate first round prospects. I think the first guy who comes to mind for me, Olivier Maxence Prosper, who is a six foot nine wing Out of Marquette, only 20 years old, improved this past season as a catch and shoot, three and D type of player. And that's the mold that he's going to follow in the NBA. Seven foot wingspan, terrific length and instincts on ball, can really guard one through five in different avenues. And that's a rare thing to be able to find in the NBA. So I think what teams wanted to get out of him with the scrimmage was can he do all of that against really good talent? is he continuing to progress as an offensive threat where he can stay spaced out on the perimeter and his jump shot looked fine. He had a really efficient game on both ends of the floor in the combine scrimmage and just looked like a different player out there. The first day of combine scrimmages is really just about seeing, okay, who on this floor is just too good for this level? Because if you are, you're probably going to be a top 20 or 25 pick. And I think prosper, played himself into that range with a really strong performance on day one. Uh, You know, other guys who had positive showings and answered some questions about them, like Brandon Pajemski, another guy out of Santa Clara, had a pretty good showing, uh, not just scoring the basketball, but being positionally sound on defense, showing craft and versatility as a ball handler to make up for some of the athletic concerns that teams might have for him. I was more skeptical on Pajemski being a first round pick coming into the combine. I am warming up to the idea now while I still don't necessarily have him as a first round guy. He definitely helped himself. Uh, Tristan Vucevic, a big man internationally, basically six foot 11, seven feet tall who hit a lot of three point shots during the combine scrimmage drilled shots from the perimeter made one or two in the mid range area, had a stretch in the first game of the combine where He basically scored 12 points in two and a half minutes and the value of international guys, particularly for teams wink wink Charlotte fans who have multiple early second round picks and you don't know how to best utilize that capital. Having an international guy who can stay in Europe, not be counted against your, your books for this coming season Mm -hmm. is really valuable. And I think Vucevic played himself from a later second round guy to now becoming a priority in that 25 to 40 range because there are a lot of teams with multiple selections there who might want to punt the roster decision down the road. And last guy I'll bring up here, Ben Shepard from Belmont six foot five connective piece, combo guard or wing grew up as a point guard, had a late growth spurt. Those are guys who I always love because you know, they have really good feel for the game of basketball and have the positional length to now, fit into the modern NBA. He just made winning plays all over the place, scored in an efficient clip, really good passer, active defender, showed all of the things that you would want. I still think he's more of a second round pick than a first round guy, but he probably cemented himself higher in that second round than coming into the weekend. So Omax Prosper, Brandon Pajenski, Tristan v- uh, Vukovic, and Ben Shepard, four winners from the combine. Tristan
1: Vukovic, is an interesting one i mean i think hornets fans would love to have another and oldest called Boca to cheer for right you know going in those european pages looking up the box scores from like whatever european league is it's, it's just a lot of fun and when they come over there was a lot of excitement for for arnie um unfortunately it didn't quite work out for him but he's having a good year back in europe but i i, I do agree with you it's a great point and we've talked about it in years past for teams with multiple picks the draft moustache has kind of died a little bit in recent years with two ways, and like that's essentially been the, the death of the draft moustache, but we still do see it every other year. I think there was um, uh, Luke, Luke Travers last year. Uh, we talked about it a bit. Ismail Kamagate was another guy who uh, – Johan Bagarin, who I know is one of Chase's guys uh, for the main Celtics. Um, so, yeah, I know, I know that's something that has kind of gone out of fashion, but it's absolutely, I think, that Charlotte should pay attention to down the road. So I think it's a, great, it's a great suggestion. That's a great point.
2: Yeah, and I think there are multiple guys in this draft class who kind of fit that in the late 20s range. You know, Bilal Kula Bali, who is a teammate of Victor Wemenyama's with Metropolitans, has started to climb up boards in different areas. I think that there's a possibility he's still around in the later part of the first round. Rayon Rupert, who plays for the New Zealand Breakers in the NBL, which has been a a fairly well-proven developmental course for a lot of prospects. Super long-armed 3 and D kind of wing. Uh, He's very raw, but does have some upside to become just a connective tissue defender in a lot of different ways. So uh, the international route is going to be an appealing one for a lot of teams in that area this year. I know adding a third two-way spot under the collective bargaining agreement might change some of the optics of of how to go about that process. But uh, I do think that there are enough talented or high upside international players in this draft that we'll probably see a return of that in this 25 to 45 range.
1: And in terms of fallers from the combine, are there any guys you think after the combine you think are likely to head back to school now or anyone you think... You know, might have played, played themselves or measured themselves, kind of out of the draft, lower down draft boards. Yeah, I
2: always try to be really, really careful about you know saying things like that about prospects and 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 not wanting to focus on the negative. Sometimes, like I I think that there were maybe a couple of guys who didn't answer some questions that I was hoping that they would. Uh, You know, Amani Bates is a name that comes up a lot online because he was such a highly followed player at the high school level. I just wanted to see a little bit more desire to share the basketball from him. It's been the knock on him for the last several years that he's very ISO driven. I don't think he helped himself enough in the scrimmages. I think there were some flashes, but he really need to come out and help himself a ton in order to get himself a, a real draft stock revival. You know, there are a lot of key decisions for some guys to make about whether they're going back to school or they're staying in this year's draft class. I think maybe the most consequential one might be for a guy named Judah Mintz who played at Syracuse last year. I've been a really big fan of Judah Mintz for some period of time. Uh, he went to high school in the area where I live and I coach
0: at right now. So I've known him don't since he was young Don't break Chase's
1: heart here with, with Judah Mintz yeah, negative I, you, you and I
0: both have been fans of Judah <laughs> Mintz for a long time. I I, I love yep. his game. He's awesome. I, I love Judah Mintz, but I think what scouts were looking for him at the combine
2: was to be able to show he could reliably shoot the three ball. And yep. he only took two in the scrimmages. He missed them both. He was impactful. He was strong in other areas, but when push comes to shove, he is going to be in a decision making process of do I want to go pro now and learn these skills in the G league, or do I want to go back to school and learn them in college? And I don't think there's a wrong answer. It's going to depend a lot on the individual and what he's hearing from different teams and scouts out there that are giving him advice. Uh, but I think that he had an opportunity to be a clear winner from the Combine by knocking down shots, by assuaging some of those concerns, and playing himself more into a certified either late first round, early second round pick. He didn't do that. Again, I wouldn't call that a loser from the Combine. I just think he's still got a key decision to make ahead
1: of him. Can I ask a question to the Judah Mintz fan club? <laughs> Let's right. do it. He is 176 pounds, he is a six, three and a half wingspan. Is he physically ready for the NBA or the G league? You know, I, I've seen a little bit of Judah play, but those, those like measurements and that way he's sick, you know, I know he's six, four, but that, that made me think it just stood out. You look at all of the measurements. He stands out as thin and short in terms of wingspan. Is that just me looking at things in too basic of a window here? Or is that fair?
0: I don't yeah go ahead go ahead Chase I mean so for the NBA I think the answer is probably no like pretty firm now that next year he would be maybe overwhelmed you know struggling probably would struggle to get through ball screens definitely don't think he would be very effective walling off drives especially like bigger stronger guards which there are much more of in the NBA than there are in the ACC Uh, but I do think that See, I, something that I thought he did measure, didn't measure well in terms of the wingspan, but he was six, three barefoot. He's taller than case and Wallace barefoot case and Wallace was six, two and a half. So the size is not an issue. Length is an issue, but I think since he has the potential to be a point guard, which is as a big part of my evaluation and having him so high, I think he will be a point guard at the next level. I don't think it's as much of a concern. If he was a two guard, that would probably be a problem because you would have more of an expectation for him to defend wings and bigger players. But which is, this is another thing I was impressed with. I thought he played pretty well in a man defense, which if he goes back to Syracuse, he'll likely be doing that a lot more. Hopefully as a Syracuse fan have my every finger and toe crossed that they're going to be playing more man to man defense next year. Um, but even if he doesn't like he'll be doing that in the G league, And I thought he looked very good in that scenario, and for what probably twenty-five minutes worth of uh, man defense against high-level competition, he didn't look like somebody that was going to get pushed around against you know level in a level playing field. But if he was in the NBA, I think that would probably be a problem. But like like Adam said, there's like no wrong answer for him really because he'd go back and be the best player on Syracuse, or he can go and be probably a team's like priority two-way player or one of one of them, and then get a ton of minutes and reps in the G League.
1: Yep.
2: Yeah, he's going to be fine whatever route that he chooses. But I think the the issue for Mintz right now is what I call the rule of two. You can't really have two clear knocks against you as a prospect. And for him, it's kind of he's undersized and he doesn't shoot it well. If Mm -hmm. he fixes the shooting, I'm not as worried about the size because he's just such an impactful, quick, jittery player. We've seen other smaller guards be able to make it as at least career backups in the NBA. Uh, he's not going to grow overnight, so I have a feeling the shot is going to be the one thing that we need to see come around for a guy like Judah. But uh, I, I agree with everything that Chase said right there. He's going to be fine either way, whether he goes back to school or not. I'd love to see more man-to-man defensive reps from him, but uh, it's just a decision at the end of the day. It's it's not going to be something that makes or breaks his career long-term necessarily. He's just got to do what's right for him and what the intel and feedback he's getting from NBA teams indicates.
1: Okay. Well, right, let's move on to our last question for here and we'll let you get out of here. We, we wanted to ask you for your, your two favorite prospects for Charlotte's later round picks. And we put the range 20 to 40 because, yes, Charlotte own 27, 34, 37 and 41. But let's be honest, they're not going to keep all those picks. They're probably going to move around somewhere, package some of them. I think the Utah Jazz last year packaged 27 and 38 to move up to 21 which is very interesting. And I think that probably gives you as a guide in terms of how far Charlotte could get. Obviously, you need a trade partner in the other end. But yeah, which are your favorite two prospects for Charlotte specifically that stand out to you in that range? And again, I'm aware like who they drafted to probably maybe affects here who you pick. But it would be great to get your thoughts because we've talked a little bit about some of the guys we like in the past. It'd be great to get some outsider input as well.
2: Sure. So... I think the farther down in a draft you go, the more you draft for positional fit or at least skill fit with the stars and the blueprint of your organization that you have moving forward. So really difficult question to answer if you don't know what the direction is going to be at number two. Uh, One thing that I will say, there's a guy who typically gets mocked more in the later first round or even in the second round who I believe is a lottery level talent. So if he's available, I'm going out and grabbing this guy. It's C.D. Sissoko from the G League Ignite program. I am a huge fan of his, about 6'6", six, 6'7", six, six, really physical kid. Uh, played very well as an 18-year-old in the G League Ignite system this year. Improved drastically as a catch-and-shoot threat, and his mechanics look so much better now. He was at about 23% a year ago playing overseas. Moved to about 33% this year, which is still not a great number, but the year over year improvement has me really optimistic about it, wh- where it goes long-term. I uh, grew up playing as a point guard. Again, another one of those boxes that checks for me. Guys who grew up as point guards, but grow into their bodies and have real positional size. He's not a skinny guy by any means. He is an absolute
1: tank. And I can't believe he's not 6'9". He's he, measured like 6'7", and he looks like he is 6'9", six, 6'10 six, out there. It's, yeah. uh, it's a mind... It just flips my mind out. It's bizarre. <laughs> the,
2: that boy thick. And he uses, he uses every ounce of that on both ends of the floor. He comes for contact and yeah. transition because he can handle a little bit, yeah. gets to the free throw line at a really high rate. And then defensively, he can guard across the lineup. But I keep going back to the intangible conversation I had with Scoot Henderson a little bit earlier. There's something about CD's mental makeup that I really like. He is a competitor. He is a guy who jaws at other people on the floor, wants to take the best defensive matchup that he can, always tries even in blowout games and late situations. Like his effort is off the charts. He's going to have some moments where he's getting technical fouls and he's playing a little bit too chippy and crossing the line, but he is a guy I would not want to play against. Therefore I would want him on my team. I also think he's a very good connective piece to have for this Hornets roster because he defends and plays at a position that i don't think they have a ton of which are those three slash four players who can really come in and do a lot of the dirty work while guys like Lamelo ball and whoever they drafted number two uh end up carrying the road on the offensive end
1: yeah and, and when we say thick we don't mean sean may thick we mean <laughs> pj tucker thick okay yeah. so i just want to make sure that people when we say thick we mean the good kind of thick right
0: <laughs> yeah he he's uh, a he's a big guy chemmy thick jacks frame type of uh type of guy yeah great comparison with that one uh
2: and then one other name that i'll throw out there for this you know later first early second round right now is noah Clowney out of alabama who uh plays kind of that four slash five hybrid position uh I'm not the most overwhelmingly high on a guy like Clowney, but I do believe in the upside being the right fit for the modern NBA. He spent a lot of time at Alabama this year, spacing in the corner, shooting three-point attempts. You see some realm of possibility where he can both protect the rim and guard on the perimeter, which is the holy grail for front court guys in the modern NBA. I think if we watch the Golden State Warriors-Sacramento Kings first-round series, that's what Sacramento was missing, somebody who could help them in those smaller ball lineups while either guarding up or guarding down. Clowney is very raw in that regard. He was a freshman a one and done prospect in this year's draft class shot under 30% from three had some moments where he wasn't as polished as he needs to be on the perimeter. But if you buy the vision for what he can turn into, that's an incredibly impactful role player. I think the other reason I want to bring up Clowney as a fit here in Charlotte it's very possible that the the Hornets take Brandon Miller with the number two overall fit and bringing in a college teammate of his, a guy who we've already seen how these two guys can coexist in different lineups together is really important. You can play them at the three and the four with another big man, like Mark Williams in the offense still hums because they can both space the floor and Clowney has no problem in the corners, or you can go a little bit smaller, try to play Clowney at the five, maybe Miller at the four And then you're super spaced and versatile. So I like the lineup flexibility that that pairing would create. We've seen it work and carry the Crimson Tide to being one of the best college programs throughout the entire regular season. I would feel pretty comfortable about having those two guys on the same team moving forward.
1: And you look at the the stats in college. Like you say, he was a 28% three-point shooter, Noah Clowney. And there'll be some people looking at this and be like, well, Kai Jones shot 29% in college. They are the same. I can promise you this is where you need to watch the tape. You need to pay attention to attempt rate and the quality and difficulty grade of the attempts. Noah Clowney is a much more advanced shooter than Kai Jones and, and might ever be, to be honest, from what we've seen in recent years. Um, it, it isn't perfect, but I mean, he hits some like, you know, step backs to his left, like much more versatile shot maker. He also missed some really wide open ones. So it's by no means consistent. But I, I do think Noah Clowney does project as a stretch 3-4. You'd love to see that free throw percentage be a little bit higher because like 65% doesn't, doesn't uh, fill you with you know glowing confidence. But an interesting guy who we've not really talked about yet. I mean, I guess, do you buy the shot and do you see him more as a, as a 4 than a 5? Because he's around 6-10, 7-1 wingspan, something like that. See, it seems like a little bit of a of a tweener, if we can still use that phrase these days. Um, where where do you see him playing in the NBA?
2: Yeah, so the the line between tweener and multi positional is really just how good yeah. are you, right? Like that's yeah. that's really what it comes down to. Uh, so, I, look, Clowney is really really young and really raw. I think in order for him to be a four, he needs to improve both as a shooter and as a perimeter defender. It'd be much easier to buy into Clowney as a top 20 guy if it was one or the other but it's both for him It's again rule of two you're catching on quick so like, I, I think for that reason I would have Clowney later on in the first round but uh, like you said much cleaner shooter than a guy like Kai Jones I wasn't really high on Kai back in the day just really toolsy athlete with some fun upside flashes but the image for how to best utilized clowny is much clearer for a lot of nba teams because we've already seen it at alabama if there's one thing that i can laud alabama crimson tide head coach nate oats for it's playing a modern style spacing the floor like an nba team and exposing these guys to how they're probably going to be utilized professionally at a young age it makes for a much cleaner translation to the game and an evaluation for scouts in our shoes
0: Well, I too am a CD Sissoko guy, so I think I'm yes. going to have to join you on that bandwagon there. Yeah. I've got him just outside the lottery right now, but me too. I, I, I I'm,
1: a, I'm I'm also in the club too. I want to join. I'm I'm right, sev- 17, so we're all, uh, all right. we're all doing good here.
0: We can all we can all celebrate. But it's, you may, you make a very interesting point about Noah Clowney because I was thinking I was recently watching a couple of old Alabama games after the lottery. I was like, might as well put put a couple yep. of these on and rummage through here and see what's going on, but. I was kind of thinking if he can be like early career, like Jeremy Grant, like not like, not like now, obviously, because once he went to Detroit, it was a whole different animal, but like the early days of when he was coming on in Philly and like, right when he came on with Denver and it became like starting to become clear that he was going to be a guy that was lasted in the NBA, could be in playoff rotations, just kind of uses that like athleticism and length to move around. Isn't necessarily the most like consistent defender, but It has enough activity to make up for that and obviously is also at least a stationary catch and shoot threat doesn't have to be can hit the occasional like step back side step up in the quarter and stuff but if he can hit that level I think that that would be at least worth the investment for the or for the Hornets in the, the with these late first early second round picks.
2: Yeah, I, I think of a, a really good comp for a guy like Noah Clowney as Trey Lyles, plays for the Sacramento Kings, mm. played at Kentucky, like swings between that four or five position mm-hmm. based on what they need, can stretch the floor and get hot in a lot of different areas. Clowney is very skinny, but he's super young. I'm not, that's not a detractor to me long term. Yeah. He just needs a little bit more time, but that would be the role that I would envision a guy like Clowney filling eventually.
1: I believe Clowney is the joint second youngest in the draft after Jimmy yeah. Jackson uh, with Bilal Kulabali and James Nashi here. I've got about 18.8 years old. So he is super young, like a full year younger. I mean, you look at someone like, we've talked about Brandon Miller, an older freshman. He is basically 20 months younger than Brandon Miller, despite both being freshmen at Alabama. So it is important that you pay attention to that. Don't just go off the freshman, sophomore, junior, senior stuff. Look at the ages because that is a much better kind of pegging of where where these guys are at.
0: COVID made things very funky with uh, class and age. It doesn't necessarily line up anymore.
1: Yeah. All right, well, Adam, we've kept you for over an hour here. Um, thank you so much for your time, for your insight. It was great to, you know, this year, because I was traveling, I did not get to watch the combine scrimmages. So it's great to get your input there on the, the rises and fall is, that is vital info for our listeners. And also good to get your input on Brandon Smith, Brandon Smith, Brandon Miller, Scoot Henderson. Um, but yeah, thanks a lot for the time. And we will continue to enjoy listening to you on the game theory podcast, watching your videos on the box and one YouTube channel. Um, anything else you want to plug here before, before we get out of here?
2: No, oh, not at all. I really appreciate you guys for having me on here. Uh, we've been talking about this for a while, James, and glad we were able to, to have it come to fruition here. Uh, I think for Hornets fans, just the one piece of advice is don't get caught too much in the weeds or developing polarizing opinions on these players because they're both really good. They're both going to help your organization. If one of them comes to town and uh, being in this position with number two, it may seem stressful. It may seem really tense at times trying to get what you want to happen to happen for this team but good things are coming to Charlotte at the very least. Just try to have the perspective and enjoy that. We needed Amen that. to that, but we not Thompson. We needed that.
1: <laughs> 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 All right. Well, uh, thank you very much. And thank you everyone for listening. Give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Go check out allhornets.com. Follow uh, Adam Spinello at Boxing One on Twitter. And we will catch you next week.